Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Industry Focus. LinkedIn Jobs matches people to your role based on more of who they really are, their skills, interests, and even how open they are to new opportunities. For $50 off your first job post, go to linkedin.com slash fool. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. It's Monday, October 8th, and welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On today's financial show, we're going to talk about the S&P, we're going to talk about tax legislation, we're going to talk about bank regulations and people lying on their mortgages, Matt. Can't even believe that's happening. We'll take a look at Square, we'll take a look at PayPal, of course, the week on Twitter. We'll give you one to watch. Uh, let's just go ahead and get rolling right here. As always, joining me today is certified financial planner Matt Frankel. Matt, it was a good week for both of our squads on Saturday. Your Gamecocks. Tell me a little bit about that, real quick. Who'd they beat? Uh, we beat Missouri, and it was on a last-second field goal, so it was a really exciting game to watch. Yeah, and there were a few delays there, I think, with the weather too, huh? Yeah, there we had a kind of thunderstormy day, which was you know kind of welcome given all the heat we've been having. Well, it was nice to see too that my Wofford Terriers uh, stuck it to Chattanooga. So hey, ought to be a good week here for us. Uh, let's go ahead and open this up. We're going to talk about the the market last week, and it's kind of bleeding into this week. It looks like the the S and P 500 last week posted its worst week in nearly a month. Gasp. Uh, now, now that really isn't the main story here. Anyone who knows us knows we don't invest uh, based on what happened over the course of last month. But I think it leads to a more interesting discussion based on what we talk about here on the financial show, because a lot of the blame uh, was assigned to the, the the rates forecast. Right? We were talking last week about short term interest rates versus long term interest rates. And it sounds like with these with these short term rates on the rise here, it also sounds like long term rates are perhaps starting to catch up a little bit here. And I think this is throwing a little bit of uh, concern, perhaps, uh, into the stock market here. But but Matt, when you see news like this, rates news as it pertains to the stock market in general, how how do you invest in times like these? Perhaps. It's a little bit more of an uncertain time, but I mean, I would argue it's still certain from the from the uh, angle that rates really don't have anywhere to go but up. Uh, does this change your investing uh, philosophy at all? Well, not really over the long term, but in the short term, this does tend to affect different stocks in different ways. Just to kind of name a couple examples, we talk about banking. Obviously, this is the financial show. Banks, as I mentioned last week, tend to do better when longer term interest rates start to rise. This affects the rates they get on things like, say, mortgages and auto loans. So, the spread between what they're bringing in on these long-term loans and paying out for deposits tends to get wider when long-term rates spike, like they are right now. If you can, if you can really call three point two on the ten-year a spike, but banks tend to see their profits rise. So you might see bank stocks outperform if this trend continues. On the other hand, high dividend stocks like REITs, uh, defensive sectors like utilities, tend to get hurt because their yields tend to look you know, not as good in comparison to the what investors can get from risk-free products like the 10-year and 30-year treasuries. So you'll see these stocks get kind of under pressure and underperform in the short term, just as kind of investors will get out of the, start selling them, get out of those in 
in favor of lower risk investments like long-term bonds that are now paying better. So you'll see banks kind of go up in price. If the trend continues, you'll see the higher yield stocks go down in price. And that creates some great buying opportunities, in my opinion. I have a lot of high dividend stocks on my own radar. But in the long run, it doesn't affect things. But in the short term, it could definitely create some good opportunities. Now, along with this news uh, regarding the market, we also got some jobs data out last week. It looks like the unemployment rate has fallen uh, to its lowest level since 1969, which is great, right? I mean, we we've really we've really made a lot of progress on that front, and it's good to see that we got a lot of people out there working. Wages uh, grew by 2.8 percent, which was in line with expectations. And I think to this point, at least. We've seen wage growth remain relatively stagnant. Now, uh, this kind of rolls into another uh, story we wanted to talk about in regard to tax legislation. And uh, it's very interesting to see here that a new survey of 152 companies by uh, executive recruitment firm Corn Ferry International revealed that of those 152 companies, only 14% were putting part of their tax cut savings into base salary increases. And a poll of 1,500 companies by Mercer showed that 4% are redirecting tax savings to budgets for bigger paychecks in the coming year. Uh, and then a survey of more than 1,000 companies published by Aon PLC, 99% said the tax cut the tax cuts were not prompting them to increase minimum wages. So, you know, I, 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 on the one hand, I'm not actually terribly surprised by this. I think that when these corporate tax rates uh, initially were cut. I think when we saw this legislation go through, the the big question was the Wall Street versus Main Street dilemma there, right? I mean, it, they're 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 two very different sides of the coin, and and what may be good for Main Street uh, isn't always going to be the best for Wall Street, and vice versa. And so, I think what we've seen here a lot of share buybacks, some dividend increases here. That's great for Wall Street. It doesn't seem like it's playing out for Main Street so much yet. I guess I wonder, can we expect things to get better for Main Street, or are we going to see just more of the same? Well, you got to understand the reason that this is happening in the way it is. As you mentioned, buybacks are at a record high. The reason is that buybacks don't really add to corporate expenses. Um, buybacks don't eat into profit margins, whereas increasing, you know, say, minimum wage that you're paying to employees, it has the effect of increasing your labor cost. And, you know, in turn, making your company look less profitable. Whereas if you just take all that money and just shove it into buybacks, your profit margins stay the same and it's good for shareholders in the long run, not necessarily for employees. Now, this move is good for Main Street in the sense that it'll, you know, people's 401ks have never been higher. Um, A lot of like buybacks over time will increase the inherent value of the shares you own or your 401k indirectly owns and can be good for main street that way but until companies have any have more incentive to direct their tax cut savings into wage growth as opposed to into dividends and buybacks i really foresee more of the same now we've seen a lot of companies offer up those one-time bonuses. That was all. I think that was very headline-driven. That was something. Right as this legislation was passed, we saw a lot of these companies come out praising it and immediately just offering these one-thousand-dollar bonuses to all of their employees. Uh, 
a nice thing, right? I mean, no one ever, I think, would turn down money. I mean, you have to remember, though, that's a one-time deal. There's a tax implication there. And, uh, again, one and done. I mean, I don't know that that necessarily creates uh, the the same incentive. As a matter of fact, I'm certain that it wouldn't create the same incentive as a uh, nice boost to the paycheck uh, over a longer stretch there. And I thought of two things as we were as we were kind of reading through these stories here. Number one, we know that Amazon recently went ahead and decided they're going to raise their minimum wage for their employees. Um, I think that's a little bit of hardball they're playing because they're really telling their competitors at this point, okay, you guys need to follow suit. And their competitors can't really follow suit because the economics don't make nearly as much sense for them because Amazon is so much bigger. Uh, another thing I thought of, though, and I'd love to get your opinion on this, is I, I've always thought that while no, I mean a lot of these a lot of these changes may not flow down to Main Street as much as they help out Wall Street. You know, we we participate as investors, so as investors, it's nice to have that. I mean, we we benefit from Main Street and Wall Street because we work and we also invest. So I feel like at least if you start investing, then you will at least benefit from stuff like this. But what about if a company said, okay, instead of offering up this one thousand dollar one time bonus, uh, why not structure something around an equity grant that vests? Over a certain period of time, maybe it's two, maybe it's three, maybe it's four years. I just feel like that's an opportunity. Number one, educate your employees more about the benefits of owning equities, uh, and then number two, it certainly gives you, I think, a workforce that's a little bit more incented to stick around for a while uh, and work as hard as they can to try to boost that share price. What do you think about that? Yeah, I definitely like to see some kind of more employee-friendly use of the tax funds. Um, in my mind, it's all about creating incentives. If there was an incentive for you know companies to do like like you just suggested, then I think we would see more of that. Um, shareholders hate seeing profit margins go down, and by using the tax cuts to incentivize employees, it inherently makes your profit margins go down. Like Amazon's profits are probably going to take a hit as a result of increasing their their wages. So. There's nothing shareholders hate more than a bad quarterly report, and <laughs> and unfortunately, if there was say a tax credit to offset some of the cost of higher wages, we might see something like that happen. But until then, I I don't know. I I I hope I'm wrong. I love to see more wage growth. It's good for everybody. So. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, okay, let's let's talk for a minute here. There's a, uh, a some some information out here recently from the Federal Reserve that they are going to try to broaden uh, the number of banks receiving regulatory relief, uh, and and this is ultimately going to change uh, potentially how it defines a big bank. And and I think the thing that caught my eye with this article first and foremost was. The fact that they're looking to change some of these regulations to make it easier for banks to lend money, and uh, which is obviously a very important factor of in, in the banking business model. I mean, that's a, that's how they make their money, right? It's all about lending it out. Um, now, I, I read this, and then I also read an article that was talking about how more people uh, are lying on their mortgage applications um, this year than last. 
And mortgage fraud risk jumped more than 12% year over year at the end of the second quarter, according to CoreLogic. And they say that one in every 109 mortgage applications is estimated to have indications of fraud. Now, we know that one of the big catalysts behind our financial crisis years ago was the fact that you didn't really have to do much of anything to get a loan to buy a house, much less five houses. And uh, banks, you know, they got called on that eventually. There was a lot of bad behavior in how they were lending money uh, to people who really probably shouldn't have been borrowing it in the first place. And it uh, became contagious and, and it really set us back uh, a number of years there. But, but do you really feel like there's an opportunity here for, for banks? Do you feel like they can walk that thin line into to relaxing some of these, some of these regulations? Uh, Without causing like housing crisis 2.0, uh, yes and no. Um, I'm all for deregulation when it's done responsibly. We've already seen some bank deregulation happen recently. Um, just uh, we talked about this in a few episodes back. They raised the threshold for what's considered a systematically important financial institution all the way from 50 billion dollars in assets to 250 billion. So that's a big leap. Um, this is a whole subset of banks that's going to save a ton of money in regulatory expenses. Um, and this action by the Fed could do the same. It also reduces capital requirements. We it It's too early to tell because we don't know the details of how much it could reduce capital requirements. Um, I don't really see them rolling it back to the pre-crisis levels, but that's just me. I, I hope I, I'm right about that. Um, and as far as the mortgage fraud thing, one out of every 109, that's definitely an uptick. That's not enough to set off housing crisis 2.0. Um, the thing to kind of point out with that is most of the fraud we're seeing is income related, meaning people you know, getting fake pay stubs and things to make it look like they can afford a house more than they really can. We're not seeing kind of credit score fraud. Your credit history is really tough to, to fake. So the big difference between before the financial crisis and now is that, like you said, anybody could get a mortgage. Right now, the credit standards are still relatively high, and those are set by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac for, for the majority of home buyers. So until you see that really start to relax, which we haven't yet, um, I don't think we're in danger of housing crisis 2.0. Now, having said that, these two things that deregulation combined with an uptick in mortgage fraud could definitely cause an uptick in mortgage defaults, which could hurt the housing market. I don't see it as housing crisis 2.0 yet, but I'm definitely watching for warning signs that it's gonna it's heading in that direction. <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I'm I'm all for deregulation as long as it makes sense. I mean, I think there's there's a responsible way to go about it. And when you're talking about banks and their role in our economy and housing's role in our economy, obviously there needs to be some form of regulation there. Uh, so yeah, it seems like we just need to keep an eye out for potential signs uh, between. Uh, perhaps an inflated housing market. I tell you, what really makes me a little nervous is just that amount of student debt that's still outstanding, and how that's going to affect uh, the generations to come and their ability to spend and save. 
Um, and, and then to your point about the difficulty in getting a mortgage, I, I will say I've noticed a big difference. I mean, from the first house that uh, my wife and I bought back in 2005, uh, to the house that we bought last year. I mean, there there was we they really put us through the ringer there in getting the loan, um, and we we both have very good credit credit histories. So um, yeah, hopefully that will uh, hopefully that won't change very much. But I guess we'll we'll certainly need to keep an eye on that. Um, okay, real quick, let's let's uh, you know what man, I was thinking maybe I'm gonna have to we're gonna have to solicit our listeners here. We may have to throw a Pull out on Twitter because we're talking Square and PayPal, and it seems like every week we've got something in regard to these companies. I'm thinking maybe we need like this week in the war on cash segment or something like that. Maybe we'll maybe we'll put a little poll out there on Twitter and see what people are thinking about that. But uh, today, let's talk at least about Square and a couple of things out there. Uh, one thing, you know, I'd seen they were dabbling in this, and it was probably going to become something they would pursue. They're now letting customers. Pay in installments. They've essentially introduced a new payment option for their small business partners in order to let customers pay for larger purchases in monthly installments. And I think larger purchases, I believe the number qualifies anywhere from $250 to, I believe, $10,000. It's not like just anybody can do it whenever they want. You have to actually be able to qualify for it. But it does sound like yet another option Square is offering its merchant partners. Sounds like they're giving them that option in order to be able to really meet their customers' demands wherever and however they need. Yeah, definitely. And I kind of have mixed feelings about this move. For one, it's a long-awaited first step into consumer lending for Square, which when we were talking about the Square Cash app, we mentioned is one of their big long-tailed opportunities to eventually monetize that base with with loans. On the other hand, what they're doing is essentially what most store credit cards do with their 0% financing offers. Uh, to be clear, Squares isn't always zero. It says there's range from 0 to 24% APR, depending on the credit profile of the borrowers. But my point is that with store credit cards, those are some of the highest default rates in the credit card industry. If you look at, say, Synchrony Bank, which is a big issue of store credit cards, their default rate is about twice what Amex's is. So this adds a big element of credit risk to Square, which is, I think, why you saw a little bit of a negative reaction in the stock after they announced this. But in the long run, I think this is really good for the business. It just it adds an element of risk, but it's definitely welcome news to people like me who's who've wanted to see them kind of step dip their toes into the consumer lending space. Yeah, as a shareholder, I, I see I see what you're saying there. I mean, I, I I saw the news and I wasn't quite sure how to feel about it at first. I feel like it does. Add that element of risk that uh, so many companies before have have uh, perhaps not executed as well on. But I, I think also the encouraging part is at least with Square, most everything they do is built on the data that they get from their hardware and software uh, systems that their merchants use. So assuming that they are doing what they say they're doing and using uh, this data to make these decisions, perhaps that is going to prove to be a bet that. Um, that that pays off down the road. Certainly, it's a it's a uh, very long term uh, oriented type of of bet there. Now we also have seen today Square shares uh, are in the tank, and that is because of a little news we saw earlier that uh, you know frankly I don't think is all that big of a deal. What do you what do you think? Yeah, what happened was uh, CEO Jack Dorsey ex- exercised some options at the end of the day Friday. And sold about 103,000 shares of Square, 
And he, he got between 95 and $98, I want to say, for his shares. So generally when a CEO starts unloading shares, it's a negative. But it's the company put out a press release. It's very important to remember this was a pre-planned sale. They stressed that it does not it does not reflect how Dorsey feels about the company or the stock's valuation or anything to that effect. So generally when this happens, we consider this a buying opportunity. It's generally in in the long term in the long context of context of things, this is a non-event. So it's down about 11% today. We were just talking before this that if we were allowed to buy some today we might. <laughs> so this is I wouldn't don't don't panic and sell. That's the last thing you want to do. Yeah, yeah, that is. Uh, I I feel like that old Peter Lynch saying: "There's there are a million reasons to sell, and really only one reason to buy." Right? And I mean, I never hold selling against anyone because that's there. That's part of compensation, right? And, and as a as a planned sale, it, it it matters even less. And so, yeah, I've, I've always found that that uh, insiders selling uh, to be uh, much more of a of a non event than I think a lot of the financial headlines would have you believe. Um, and yeah, I mean, geez, if if we didn't have these trading restrictions, I certainly would be thinking very, very long and hard about adding to my position. And I still may. Hey, you never know. Maybe I'll maybe I'll shut up about Square for the rest of the week here, so I can have at least the choice, right? Um, <laughs> hey, so I also saw here we were talking about this before the uh, before taping the Phoenix Suns, the NBA team, the Phoenix Suns and PayPal have announced a multi-year global partnership where PayPal is going to be the patch. The official patch of of the Phoenix Suns, and not only that, but the Phoenix Suns organization is going to integrate PayPal payment solutions in virtually every facet of of their organization of for for games, tickets, concessions, all of this stuff. Um, this really is playing into uh, that that trend where people less and less want to worry about carrying cash, and they want to be able to just. You know, make that purchase with their phone. It's a lot safer. It's a lot easier. I, I kind of like this move, don't you? Yeah, it's just kind of a. It seems like it's a big race between all these fintech companies as who could build the ecosystem the fastest, who could eliminate the need for cash in the most places. Like you said, if you're watching a Phoenix Suns game at the arena, PayPal is it. So it's definitely like a it's a head to head competition, and maybe um maybe Square Cash is surpassing Venmo for number of downloads kind of scared PayPal into making themselves a little more visible to the public. So. Yeah, and I think it's also uh worth noting that whenever we talk about these things, I mean I mean I I don't view this as a zero sum game. I don't think we're looking at just one horse that we need to bet on here. I mean, whether it's PayPal or Square, I mean, I'm certain there's going to be another uh, concept that comes up. Stripe obviously is out there, not a public company, but Stripe is is obviously performing very well, and and uh, they continue to to raise capital to build that business out. So I, I just think it's a fascinating opportunity there. A lot of different ways you can win it. And I think that's really what the war on cash basket was about in the first place. So yeah, listeners, keep a keep a look out there. Maybe we'll get a poll out there on Twitter. I'm going to ask you. Uh, what do you think? Should we have a uh, this week in the war on cash segment for the shows uh, going forward? I'm sure we'll uh, always have a surplus of news to choose from these four uh, from the four businesses. Uh, you know, Matt, I, I was a landlord for about seven years. We rented our house down in Georgia, and when people asked me for advice, I always told them that having the right renters makes all the difference in the world. The right hire. 
can make a huge impact on your business, too. And that's why it's so important to find the right person. But where do you find that individual, Matt? Where do you find that individual? Can you give me just one guess? It would be LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Yep. LinkedIn is more than the world's largest professional network. It's also a better way to find great talent. 70% of the U.S. workforce is already on LinkedIn, and businesses rate LinkedIn jobs 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. Just ask any of the hundreds of thousands of businesses who have posted to LinkedIn jobs over the past year. And because LinkedIn considers skills, experiences, location, and more to match and promote your job to potential candidates, well, like I said, businesses rate LinkedIn jobs 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. So, hurry to LinkedIn.com slash fool for $50 off your first job post. That's LinkedIn.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, Matt, let's uh, let's take a little break from the specific world of finance. You were in town here last week at the Fool HQ for a couple of days for our uh, annual, annual writers uh, summit, I guess, lack, for lack of a better word there. All of these writers, all of that great stuff we see on Fool.com every day, all of you guys and girls, y'all were here last week uh, to, to share best, uh, best practices and tips and whatnot. Number one, I mean, tell me a little bit about your trip here. Did, did you have anything? Uh, did, did you get to go somewhere to eat that you that really stood uh, stood out, or what? Uh, a bunch of the writers and a few of the in-house people. We all uh, went to the new MGM National Harbor after the conference oh, wrapped, which was really right, fun. Right? Yeah. Did you get any gambling uh, uh, in? <laughs> uh, a, a few of us did. Um, I don't know if you've been there yet. It's a really neat place if you're ever in the DC area. Um, great restaurants in there. Uh, we all hit Shake Shack after we were done. Done gambling. Very nice. Um, yeah, I haven't had a chance to get over there yet. I, I feel like I really need to, but I don't really have a big gambling bone. But uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe I'll get over there for a show or something. Um, but but give me give me a couple of uh, ideas here. Give our listeners a couple ideas. Some of your favorite takeaways from the conference here. What were some of the things that you took away from the from the conference that you feel like uh, we need to know about? Well, just hearing from a lot of the the writers, especially those who have been there a lot longer than me and who have kind of followed the. The foolish investing strategy through the years, just kind of how well they've done, and how some of some of our writers are the best testimonials to how well the system works. I mean, uh, I I heard from a few who bought Netflix when it was worth about a hundred <laughs> one and one hundredth of what it's worth now, just because um, Tom and David Gardner were recommending it so heavily, and did what they did what they said and held it throughout the years for the ups and downs. Didn't pay attention to market noise. Some bought, I mean, before the financial crisis, even, and um, just kind of to stay the course is the biggest takeaway I learned. And some of our writers, not, I mean, I haven't been here since before the the financial crisis, but a lot of them have, and it's just kind of inspiring to see how well it works and how it's actually changed people's lives. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that we uh, probably one of the bigger hurdles we face just in our jobs day to day is just really helping people to to. Believe in that because it, it's easier said than done. Um, I, I think that once you've had a little success in doing it, it becomes a lot easier. Kind of like adding to your winners. Um, but but yeah, that's that's great stuff. Well, I'm looking forward to getting you back here soon. Um, we yeah, I didn't know to... everybody in the in the office was going to be off on Friday, so I've <laughs> yeah. still never met Jason in in person. We, so all the we listeners know the half the office was gone for our unsick day, and I was in an office locked up uh, talking stocks for a report we have coming out here very soon. So, 
it was a busy week for some, maybe not as busy for all. But yeah, it was uh, the timing just didn't work out. But I know I know we'll get you back here soon. Um, okay, this week on Twitter at Zach Fergie. Uh, tweeted me last week. He said, these cashiers at this Shake Shack in uh, LAX, that LAX airport, keep announcing credit debit only, no cash, sorry, like it isn't 2018. And he added the little hashtag war on cash there. And he was just making the point that, hey, all of these places now, so many places are just getting rid of the cash option and just going credit, debit, mobile payments. It's just so much work for these business businesses to manage cash. I mean, you got to count it, you got to balance it, you got to take it to the bank, you got to make sure it's right. I mean, it just it takes up a lot of unnecessary time. So I just uh, appreciate you Zach Fergie for sending that out there. Uh one of the one of the big reasons why we love all of those uh fintech companies, so to speak, those PayPals and Squares, and even MasterCards and Visas, they're really adopting uh, to to a sort of a new cashless economy there. Uh, all right, Matt, we've got earnings season kicking in here. Really, I mean, Friday marks, marks the big start, right? That's when the big banks announce. We've got a number of them announcing Friday morning. So we figured we would narrow down our playing field for the one to watch this week, and just choose some of these banks uh, that are going uh, going to announce earnings on Friday. So hit me with your one to watch this week. Well, obviously I'll be watching all of the big banks reporting earnings, but Wells Fargo is one that I really have my eye on, just because their last quarterly report was so terrible. Um, last quarter they missed expectations, which I don't really pay too much attention to expectations, as we've said on the show. But their revenue dropped almost 3% year over year. Their deposit base is down 2%. Kind of the big takeaway is that the, as of the end of last quarter, there were no signs that their you know, scandals and whatever have really begun to get into the past yet. So I'm looking for that. And I'm also looking for anything management might have to say about the Federal Reserve's penalty that they put on the bank where, the, where Wells Fargo is not allowed to grow right now. And we really don't have a clear timetable of when that might be lifted. So any kind of color that management wants to give on that will be, I'll be looking for it. Basically, just I'm hoping to see that Wells Fargo's report isn't quite as horrible as last time, but I'm not. I don't have terribly high expectations. <laughs> yeah, it seems like they've got some culture issues there. They've really got to figure out and just keep on waiting for yet another shoe to drop. Someone at the writers' conference actually um, had a great quote on Wells Fargo. They said, Wells Fargo is a great bank aside from their fraud. (laughs) And that really is the crux of it, right? I mean, you don't really want to bank with a bank that you don't trust. Yeah, I I don't want to name names, but that that person really summed it up well. Nice. And the ticker for Wells Fargo? Uh, WFC. Okay, great. Well, I'm going to go with J.P. Morgan Chase. Ticker is JPM. Um, I've always been a big fan of Jamie Dimon's. I feel like he's probably one reason is enough to invest in this business. I, I think he's he's it, and uh, and so I, I feel really really good about him being there at the helm. Not afraid to speak his mind either on the calls. I tell you, he's, he's he can be a little entertaining at times too. But I tell you, the company is making a strong push into digital. Last uh, quarter, they reported 31.7 million active mobile customers, which I think is just actually kind of amazing. I'm not uh, not sure that I know anybody 
who uh, is one of those active mobile customers. But hey, I guess they're out there. Um, but they have a very healthy yield, very well capitalized bank, and I think that's going to continue to be the case. Uh, they do continue to buy back shares. Uh, shares right now trading at a little bit more than two times tangible book value, which uh, I, I don't know. That really is the bar where they like to repurchase as much as possible. Um, but but again, I think that of all of the big banks, this is the big bank that I would want to own first. Uh, so looking forward to that earnings call on Friday as well. Okay, Matt. As always, I appreciate you joining us. Anytime. It's always fun to be here. Yeah, man. We'll uh, we'll catch you next week, and you can give us a little bit on what you're looking out there for the money show that you're uh, you're going to be heading to uh, the following week, I believe. Right? Oh, my agenda's really shaping up nicely. <laughs> good. Well, that's good for listeners. I have a lot of good stuff to listen to. Hopefully. Uh, so, as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. The show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.